Welcome to MFM Speaks Out. This is the official podcast of the nonprofit advocacy organization called Musicians for Musicians. This monthly podcast is co-hosted by MFM members and musicians Adam Reifsteck and yours truly, Dawood Kringle. MFM seeks to bring together musicians from all disciplines, styles, traditions, and locations in the cause of their mutual self-betterment. Whether through education, networking, or political action, MFM's ultimate goal is to elevate the work of all musicians to the level of a true profession. We encourage you to get involved by using the hashtags on social media, Unity in the Music Community, and Making Music as a Profession. And we encourage you to visit musiciansformusicians.org and to join our organization. If you'd like to become a supporter, you may do so by visiting our website. Again, that's musiciansformusicians.org. Our guest for this episode of MFM Speaks Out is Jeff Slatnick. Jeff has been an employee and later the owner of Music Inn for over 54 years. Music Inn is one of the oldest music stores in New York City, second in longevity only to Sam Ash Music. It is a landmark music store in the West Village of New York City, specializing in imported world and western instruments, rare and exotic music items, and records. Music Inn is also the headquarters of Limulus, a company that designs and manufactures unique solid-body string instruments. Slatnik started at Music Inn in 1967, when it was a record and musical instrument store run by Jerry Halpern, the original owner who'd opened the store in 1958. Music Inn was frequented by the likes of Bob Dylan when he lived a few doors down at 161 West 4th Street, as well as people like John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix, John Sebastian, Richie Havens, Paul Simon, and many others. In 1968, Slatnik left Music Inn to attend the Ali Akbar Khan School of Music in California. He studied under masters of Indian music such as Ali Akbar Khan, Ravi Shankar, and Nikhail Banerjee. He returned to New York City in 1976 as an accomplished performer. In 1993, Halpern retired, and Slatnik became the owner in 1998. They do musical instrument repairs, specializing in repairing instruments few others are capable of. In addition to maintaining Music Inn as an importer and distributor of musical instruments, he and Andy Doughty founded Limulus Musical Instruments. Limulus manufactures unique solid-body sitars, sarodes, ouds, tamburas, guitars, bass guitars, and custom-built hybrid instruments. Music Inn also hosts live performances and m open mics. Slatnik is also an accomplished music teacher specializing in Indian raga. Welcome to MFM Speaks Out, and thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for interviewing me. I appreciate it. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. You've been a mainstay in Greenwich Village, a historical hub of musical creativity, especially in the countercultures of the 60s and beyond, and uh, you've seen them come and go. Uh, what do you think was the reason that so much music and art came from this this small geographic location? Oh, it's funny you should ask that question because uh, 
examining the uh, history of this area from when the uh, Native Americans first lived here because there was a, a river that ran from 15th Street all the way across Washington Square Park uh, and then uh, would run down a Mineta Lane, which is just a block below the cage, the basketball court on 6th Avenue and 4th Street. Uh, and because of that, this river ran all the way to the Hudson. Uh, it, it was not a good place to build giant buildings and make the neighborhood into like all the towers that were downtown now just creeping up. You couldn't build that high. So uh, because of that also, the gravitational pull of, the, uh, of Manhattan Island, of the parts of the island, it's not the strongest because the density of the granite that is downtown and uptown are so full of the power of gravity that uh, the pull is less strong in the village. So back in the days when just the Native Americans were here, all the uh, tribes would have a powwow in Manhattan, in the village, pretty much where we are, where the music inn is now, and they would all gather. An interesting little side story is uh, Daoud, who is doing the interviewing of me, and Noe Dinnerstein uh, were both students of mine at one time, learning classical Indian music. And, uh, uh, Noe came in with a new sitar he has, and he wanted it made chromatic. He wanted a fret in every uh, half-step interval. Mm. And uh, I said, okay, we'll do it. And uh, Daoud came the next day by just coincidence with a sitar that I had done for him, a very similar kind of sitar, a flat-back sitar with a pickup in it. And... Uh, here was an example of one I had already done. It was so funny. And now today, when Noe came to pick up his sitar, Dawood is here to interview me. We have all seen each other again, and it is a, uh, a fraternity of uh, common cause and experience in life that uh, gives us some kind of power and energy. That mm. We communicate with each other through it and, and are esteemed by our experience with each other. Yeah, the, uh, that's one thing that I notice about uh, music in. Um, I've heard stories and, and, of course, seen evidence and even participated in what uh, was once, I guess you could describe, a community of musicians. And, uh, you know, music in seems to be upholding that, uh, that tradition. Well, there just have always been people who came around and felt comfortable here. So it even goes back to the Bob Dylan days when he felt comfortable enough to come in and take a guitar and go two doors down where there was much more floor space. You have to remember the music in originally was all upstairs in that one room. It was like a jungle of instruments. <laughs> I remember that. And uh, he would take a guitar and go to Allen Block, had a sandal shop two doors down, which is now Coppola's coffee shop. And uh, it was just a big, long space with a counter on one side and a counter on the other so that he could make sandals on the bench. It was more really a workbench. And then there was just a big open space. And Alan played the fiddle, old-time fiddle, and uh, he had a daughter and a son, 
Paul and Rory, and Rory played guitar wonderfully and was the prettiest thing. Mm. And uh, Paul had his problems, but was a good musician too. And uh, so everybody, uh, there was a community in that way too of energy, uh, a great exposure to American folk music. Uh, the Music Inn was a great source of uh, American folk music, uh, but uh, records, all the coolest records were there. But Jerry, who owned the store originally, he wasn't like a folk singer who played the guitar and knew songs. But I was. So once I started working here, it was like a, a resource for me to exploit as well as be exploited by. So it had a purpose greater than than ourselves or ambitions. It, it became a community device to uh, bring people together and I guess I was the one who uh, had to take the job of keeping it all going and running and make it significant. So the first uh, thing was I was capable of repairing people's instruments no matter what. If it was an Indian instrument, Chinese, Japanese, anywhere African, I could understand the physics of it and come up with a solution no matter what the cause. Back in those days, there was no computer or internet, but uh, I kind of liked it better that way. There's definitely a spirit of the musician who wants to be the seaman on the ocean and nothing more than Peapot. Mm. Uh, those were different times. Well, the times uh, remained the same as far as the independent spirit of people's creative energies. But it is good to learn, you know. So I went off and spent really seven years of my life learning what it was to be a classical Indian musician. That was in uh, that was in nine, yeah uh, sixty eight to seventy six when I came back. Hmm. And when I came back, I was still uh, recognized that what I knew then and was capable of, I could easily make a living playing classical Indian music in a fancy Indian restaurant. Indians have this uh, peculiarity that came from the days of the royal courts and the mogul courts. There were always court musicians that played for meals and play, it was like, you didn't watch the news on TV and ate, you know, you, you listened to a court musician play, it helped you digest and uh, that's how a musician made a living if he was really good player was being in a court. Yeah, so and anybody anybody that plays the sitar or any Indian instrument tablas uh, sooner or later they got to do their time in the Indian restaurants. Yeah, and I there, did. Yeah, and there's all kinds of players. Who in fact, uh, if I recall correctly, many years ago you told me that uh, uh, that you had uh, actually. Uh, helped start uh, Indian musicians playing in Indian restaurants in New York, like on uh, East 6th Street when there used to be a lot oh, of Indian no, restaurants. Oh, no, no, I never played in East 6th Street. I got pe other people into it. But no, 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 no. I, 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 you see, I figured to go to where the money was right away. So I went up to places like Rockefeller Center and 48th Street and Madison, not Madison, Park Avenue. Uh, and I played in these fancy places and they paid really well. But a lot of people started playing who were, some were students of mine, some were, uh, came from other sources. 
most of them were not that classically trained. There was not a great classically trained scene here. Uh, it had all happened in California, and some people came back uh, and played here, but not many. Uh, that gave me a big advantage because I had really studied the music, so not only did I know compositions, but I had always improvised anyway. So I had the spirit of improvising, but understood the breadth of the skill, which developed over 5,000 years. Indian music is interesting, though. It has values much greater than just playing an instrument or being an artist in your own right with the music is that the Indians had really studied every possible raga or scale that you could come up with. And everyone was given a name and uh, a character and explored and then had a tradition that was played by really fine musicians who would pass it on to their sons or daughters and so on. There was only... Uh, uh, in the tradition of the most classical music, like we have classical music in the West. There's Beethoven and Mozart and Bach and Brahms and you go on down the list. But the classical music in India was passed on by a living musician who played it. So if his father played it, he uh, said, listen, I'm Bach, this is the music I'm playing. And he taught his son it. The guy was guaranteed a good job in the royal court somewhere, you know. He didn't starve on the street or play in an Indian restaurant. Uh, so that was op the opportunity of studying with the Indian guys that I did gave me the sense of what that tradition of playing in a royal court was all about. Unfortunately, I had a bad experience with Ravi Shankar, which... When really? he found out, yeah, when he found out that I was going to play in an Indian restaurant, that was a really fancy uptown restaurant where I'd be making $3,000 a week. Not, not, mm. not the kind of money that you were making on, on 6th Street. But 6th Street was a great place because it became really the lifeline. Uh, and uh, I admired one player, Frank Menelson, who's an American Indian dude, who played awesome sitar, was so strong and... Uh, uh, very clear-minded, so he understood the flow of a rag, and uh, there are people who just, you know, they just jump all over the place. This, their minds are just all over the place, and you can hear it in their music. But there is this flow that you discipline yourself to, like a, a yoga, and it comes from uh, one guru to and the next disciple and down the line. And uh, there are rules of it. You know, I myself personally uh, rejected the idea of the guru when I, uh, the, he came to me and asked me if I wanted to be tied. That means put a string around my finger in a ceremony and say that he is my guru. And like my father, I devote my life to his well-being. He's like a king and I am his disciple. And owe this allegiance. And you rejected that. Yeah, I didn't want to say he was my guru in life. You know, he was only one part of it. Mm. And uh, after that, instead of getting paid a hundred dollars a month to just live and study with free tuition, I suddenly was off the books and no, no more on the salary, and uh, had to uh, pay tuition. Mm. 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 So I immediately got jobs playing uh, and teaching guitar. 
that was the easiest thing. Then uh, I found a good tabla player and started playing in Indian restaurants out, out west. And that turned out to be a really good experience because I then played with other people. When I came back to New York, though, uh, there was always the calling of the music in. So I sort of did both. I worked here in the day and played at night. Here at Music Inn, you worked yeah. in the, and then gigged at night. Yeah, I gigged at night, so I had enough money to actually afford a family and have a son and live in a nice place. And not just be the poor guy I had been in all the years that I was just into studying Indian music and willing to live anywhere and sleep <laughs> anybody's basement if they just let me sit there and practice all the mm, mm. Yeah. Um, you returned to uh, New York in uh, 1976, and uh, uh, and as you said, you started working in at Music Inn again. Um, what had uh, what had changed apart from uh, apart from yourself? What had changed in the in the uh, music scene in the music community in New York during your? Uh, well, that was a, when I came back in '76. Was a a very hot period for me. So uh, a lot of really good musicians who were coming through the music in when they saw how I played the Sarod, they wanted me to come and play with them right away. Mm. So it was very easy to get suddenly jobs and, and experience was good for me uh, playing the Sarod. Uh, when I was in California, I had engaged in an act that was sort of funny it's like what my son is doing now where he tap dances mm. uh, this guy could sort of tap dance on a rope with katak bells around his ankles mm. and do it on a rope and and dance while I played pretty uh, intricate classical like raga music and uh, it was awesome people loved it uh, so I came back to New York partly because with was a big success in California. And uh, anyway, so the tabla player went back, and then uh, it was hard to find a really good tabla player in New York, anybody who was really trained. There were a lot of people who played, just had taken lessons here or there with somebody who was a good tabla player, but not a big star like Zakir Hussein or the big name tabla players. They are, were all in California, so uh, hard to find a tabla player that was good. A few, few were pretty good. Uh, the advantage of the California scene is you could get a great guru teaching you, and they'd be there year-round, except for a tour here and there. Mm. And uh, you could have lessons every day, you know. Mm. It was a whole nother experience. And you you studied with uh, you mentioned Ravi Shankar and uh, Ravi Shankar was would come to see Ali Akbar Khan. I was a road player. I was happy with Ali Akbar Khan, but he would come and uh, give a two week seminar for advanced students, mm -hmm. and uh, you know he would teach it pretty much like Ali Akbar Khan would teach. He'd play and vocalize, and then you would try to play it back. He'd show you a composition. He wasn't as good at that point of laying out a really solid composition, but it wasn't it wasn't his fault. You know, Ali Akbar Khan had the advantage of laying one out over two months, 
you know, he could give you a, an alap, a jor, a jala, and then a got, and then a medium tinta got, and then a fast got, and a jala at the end. And the whole performance in one rag, in one particular style, you know. Mm. And say, oh, this is Gyaki style, how to do this. And, uh, that's, a, that's more of a vocal yeah, style? Yeah, vocal yes. style, yeah, with a lot of slides mm. on the way. Lots of uh, means, yeah, or, lots or bends, of means. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and those other terms, uh, 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 alap, got, uh, jor, jala, those are uh, sections of, yeah, a, of a Hindustani raga. Right, the, the presentation of a musical idea. Like, first you have... You show the scale or what the melody is based on. You invoke the spirit of yeah, the raga. and you invoke the spirit, but you don't need a beat or anything. You just invoke how the notes relate, and you can feel the natural balance of them, like planets who have their own gravity, and the melody is created that way. Then you add a beat to it. Then you add a, a cycle, so that you're telling. Now, not only is there a beat, there is time for a story. And there are characters in the notes. Each note is a different character in the story. And then you elaborate how each one folds into the others. And then you create little skits and scenes of between them. And uh, always uh, refer back to the grand scheme always to hold on to, the got, that basic melody, keeps a, a good, solid, sense of the object itself in your hands. Mm -hmm. Then there is the aspects of it, and that is in the presentation. But then all these other things come into making it faster and more complicated and developing it. And this is the gift of that sort of classical style, the development of the presentation of a concept. And it works in anything you do, whether you're writing a play or anything like that. Uh, uh, Indian music has now been uh, absorbed in, in uh, a global culture through the uh, record and the, the traveling experience and the jet plane and uh, that the so much so that the music itself which was a uh, uh, an encyclopedia or library of melodic ideas uh, it has now, it's available globally and it can be enhanced by the richness of all societies and all musical experiences. Uh, the, the reference is the particular way a tune is told or a story is told is so regional. You know, it's easy to recognize the difference between uh, calypso and reggae and mm -hmm. uh, African, West African music and calypso and reggae. Each one, yet they all have evolved through a similar experience. There's a thread of continuity within all of it. Yeah, so now there is a more global enhancement. But uh, more than any, it is the uh, Indian, northern Indian musical culture that is the most important, I think, on a global level to understand global music. Mm. how each melodic form is. Uh, but music is meant to be loved. It's just an experience. It's like making love with the deity of existence. But uh, other than that, though, there is uh, this continuity of 
the global experience. The music in is unique because from the very beginning, uh, though it was rooted in the American folk culture at the earliest time, that culture and intellectual, uh, the, you know, mindedness of it, led it to being into the uh, global experience of music. Hmm. Oh, this is so cool. This is Japanese music. Oh, this is a French movie. This is a Russian movie. This is a German movie. This, there was a great period in the uh, 60s and late 50s into having a, a global consciousness. And the store always reflected that. Hmm. And it, uh, it seems to remain a center of that, uh, that reflection and that uh, focal point of community even to this day. You... Uh, took over uh, management of uh, music in in uh, what what year was that well you know it's a long evolution in the 90s uh, uh, Jerry never came anymore rather than make these stories just uh, uh, factual accounts of t times and dates it's interesting to know the uh, the events and how unusual it was Jerry never had any children. Uh, he had a wife, and eventually she died of uh, cancer. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was alone, and uh, he was a very private man. He didn't really trust anybody. And, uh, you know, he was very cold to most people, and he loved keeping a distance. Mm -hmm. uh, though he uh, was the creator of the store, somehow, he took a special liking to me. Uh, in the early days, people said he took a liking to Bob Dylan, and uh, Bob said uh, to him that he would never work for him. For some reason, they had a conversation about it. But, you know, he was always looking maybe unconsciously for a son, but he didn't trust anyone. Uh, oh, wait, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but he, uh, he actually spoke to Bob Dylan about working in the store? Yeah, I wasn't there to witness it, so I can't account for the exact conversation. But uh, the what was related to me is that Bob Dylan said, Jory, you know, I, I could never work for you. An attraction to each other, so they shared common something. And Jerry knew things that uh, Bob didn't know. Jerry just really uh, knew a lot of the old folk music, the old Irish and Scottish music and ballads and earlier ones and medieval ballads and uh, he'd listened to everything and he knew all the American folk stuff from Woody Guthrie and Hank Williams and country and everything. He was just really well versed in music. Mm. He had a great record store that carried all these kind of records and it was the most unpleasant job, and he didn't trust any of the workers here. There were many people working here when I first came here. Uh, there were uh, eight people working here, plus him and uh, his brother-in-law back in uh, 70, 67. Uh, it was just at the end of 67 uh, when I, I had gotten a job playing at the Electric Circus, uh, I knew no idea how to get sitar strings or anything, even though I was playing the sitar as a total amateur. Didn't study anything. It was just a good guitar player who started playing the sitar. And uh, 
somebody told me there was the music in, so they came over and the guy said, you could play the sitar. And I said, yeah. And he said, like, uh, and he had a whole bunch of sitars hanging up in the front of the store over his counter. And he said, uh, uh, you want to work here till Christmas uh, part-time? And uh, I said, okay. And the, really, he needed somebody that could tune the sitars and sell them to customers. So I was really good at it right away at selling the sitar because I really like playing it, and that's. And then of course I got into the guitars because I had the guitar and the banjos and the mandolins and the dulcimers and the whole gamut of American folk instruments, and uh, it was a good job for me and for him. But then uh, when I met Ali Akbar Khan, it was like here is a truly great master. I have an opportunity in my life to study with a great artist, a famous, world famous artist from uh, Gharana, where he is the uh, progenitor of uh, the likes of India's most prominent musicians. He is the son of the. Ustad Alahuddin Khan. Yes, exactly. So. Uh, this guy I could tell you stories about for a good 15 minutes. <laughs> uh, just word of mouth stories that I heard while studying. But Yeah, I remember when I was taking lessons, sitar lessons from you, you told me a few of those stories. I remember many of them. What changes did you, uh, did you make towards the end of Jerry's time here at uh, Music Inn and, uh. and after? So uh, all everything was upstairs, and uh, uh, Jerry, as I said, didn't trust me at all or anything. So it had gone as he got weaker and weaker. He would show up at two o'clock, and during that period, instead of getting here at ten or nine in the morning, uh, I would go and play basketball at the cage at West Fourth Street till he would call me on my little flip phone, and I would come over. And he would unlock all the 50,000 locks that were on the door that he was afraid somebody was going to steal his shit. And uh, we'd work, and then he became less and less capable. He, but he didn't really work. Then he would just sit in a chair behind the counter, and I would just run the store. But everything was upstairs, so it was like going into a jungle. And, uh, I remember I would, that. I, because I was very athletic and playing basketball all day, I, I loved climbing on the shelves and stuff like that. Eventually, uh, I got rid of the records, put them in boxes and put them downstairs. Nobody was buying records. Everybody was looking for CDs. And, uh, so, uh, uh, but... Uh, he got weaker and weaker, and then uh, one day uh, he didn't show up. So I went over to where he lived, and the doorman got me into his apartment. And uh, I had never seen such a mess. Like uh, He was a hoarder, and he oh. like had stacked up as if it was a Lionel train running through your house, uh, stacks of Village Voice newspapers from the earliest publications. Mm -hmm. He saved all of them. Wow. What happened is because he was now weaker and weaker, he had knocked over the stacks, they had all fallen over, and the whole apartment was total mess and disarray. All the things that he had hoarded, and among them all kinds of funny, amazing things, like ivory horn from Africa uh, from the 19th century, and uh, just an 
all kinds of odd things. But anyway, uh, the super let me in, and there he was laying on the floor, and he was almost unconscious in his own piss and shit. And mm. uh, he said, let me die, let me die, I want to die, leave me alone, I want to die. I said, no, you're going to go to the hospital. And uh, he said, no, no, I don't want to die, leave me alone, get out of here, and uh, just all this. And uh, I called my wife Candace, and she came over right away. And she was able somehow along with me to coax him to call an ambulance. An ambulance came and took him to the hospital. Uh, then he never came back to the store after that, never. But during that time in the proceedings, I got a lawyer and uh, he wrote a will that the store would be mine and I took care of him. Way, the fact that he had so many locks around himself and his heart he was then like locked into his body and he, he couldn't do anything. Eventually he couldn't move anymore. He's just in bed all the time. And I hired my son's friends uh, along with my son to watch him at night because he needed a 24 hour. Mm. Uh, the city also sent somebody who really knew what he was doing and he died. And when he died, uh, now the store was completely mine, but during a period of maybe five to seven years, I don't know. We kept him alive, maybe it was five years. And then he died. Yeah, I remember when he died. That's when uh, things started changing here at Music Inn. You uh, start, you... Uh, well, I inherited some money that he had that was, wasn't a lot of money, but then I put the stairway in. So there was the downstairs and cleaned the whole downstairs up and put all the percussion downstairs. Then I brought the records back upstairs because I saw that people were buying records now. But uh, once they put the upstairs and downstairs, we were able to expand so much into making a workshop here and then getting involved with Andy, who was a student of mine who played flute on Surrey. Andy Doughty. Andy Doughty. And uh, uh, I showed him some models and told him about a dream I had, and he showed me some electric guitars he made. And we sit out together to build an electric road. And that was the uh, beginning of uh, the Limulus company. Uh, we were very successful, and then together we were able to carve 14 instruments straight out by hand, and each one mm. changing the design, discussing it, and then carving together. He'd come uh, when he could, and I would work uh, on it when I was here. And uh, the store changed a lot. This became the workshop, and there was so much uh, growth in that direction and period. Mm. Uh, we got into the shows, having live shows here, and yeah. open mics, and uh, all kinds of things opened up, and the younger people started to come in. The store itself has a life. It's really not like uh, anybody owned it. It really goes back to the Indians that all came here to uh, have their power before the Dutch slaughtered them. Uh, there was uh, always this place that Greenwich Village is, you know, it's because the gravity, I don't know what it is that's just an idle So song. this uh, geographic location was before the European settlers, the uh, the Native Americans who were here, uh, they uh, used this area as a as a gathering place, and yes, and it's still it's remained that. To getting back to the limulus instruments that you make, uh, what are uh, 
the designs of these instruments are some of the, are some of the most unique I've ever seen. Uh, what have been some uh, musicians' reactions to the to this unique and probably unprecedented uh, design? People are yeah. People are always fascinated. It's good that I give them a bit of a spiel about how I came up with the design and what it sort of meant. It it gives a deeper insight for them. Uh, you know, it goes back to when I first started playing electric guitar. I was 13. My dad took me to a store. I bought a uh, 1958 Fender Telecaster mm. and started playing it. Do you still have it? No, no, no. Oh! I traded it and got a sitar with the money. Mm, mm, mm. Anyway. The one that got away. <laughs> I recognized that if I cut off part of the body of it, it wouldn't change the sound much at all. Hmm. That there was, the body was just sort of a decorative shape to be able to hold all the parts and nothing more. Hmm. And when I played it the first time in the store, I, I said to the guy, it didn't have much sound at all, even though I was playing through a Fender amp, a really good one. Uh, and he turned the reverb and the tremolo up now this is back in the day when there was really no distortion even. This is before Jimi Hendrix. Uh, and uh, I said, oh, okay, you know, I had the echo, the, the reverb and the tremolo. But, but uh, I didn't think it had a good tone. So I thought about it right from there at 13 until I had a dream where uh, these aliens from the future came and they were playing an instrument that looks very much like what we're making now. Really? And they said, this is what we play, stupid. Uh, <laughs> so go make it. And uh, uh, so I woke up, I made a clay model of the, the body itself. Hmm. And uh, so when I met Andy, I showed him the clay model of the body and I said, let's carve it. So. We did, and we carved it so the neck was part of the body, and uh, uh, put a steel fingerboard on it, and we were able to do it, and uh, it sounded pretty good. It, it, it wasn't like a beautiful mastered instrument. I have it here. Yeah, the uh, Limulus instruments uh, seem to have, I mean, they're solid body instruments, but they seem to have a very unique acoustic property to them, which is something that a lot of uh, solid body instrument manufacturers seem to neglect. They uh, concentrate on uh, on the uh, on the electronics, the electrical part of it, and on uh, the ergonomics. But uh, the actual acoustic properties of the instrument is something that's almost overlooked. Yeah, that's what I went for. Is like, how can I make a a shape that was archetypical of what the actual physics are of it, like the violin is an example of it, or the saxophone, not just the function of the different uh, mechanics uh, that make it happen, but actual the vibrating matter of the thing, of the body of the instrument. So uh, it seemed to me that there was an archetypal body for a solid body instrument. And uh, it should be thin and uh, able to resonate and yet not feed back at all when you 
played at really loud volumes. Mm. And yet it should have a tone so that each the each string transferred its sound to the next string very easily. Mm. Uh, in a physical way, not just because the amp is toned up so high that it makes a sympathetic vibration on other strings on a solid body guitar like a Les Paul. Uh, in itself, there is a harmonic beauty to each note. So it was perfect for finer instruments like the Sarod that we call the Zarod, a fretless one, or the Sitar one, or the... Uh, Dilaruba that we're making now, there is this potential for a much finer uh, interplay in the whole vibration of the thing and all the strings together. Hmm. Uh, so they do, there's no question they have more sustain and sound better. Hmm. Uh, the shape is uh, the simplest logic, uh, how it grew, it makes all the sense in the world. There is the dome. Uh, just like the horseshoe crab that could walk at the bottom of the ocean with millions of pounds of water on its back, there is the power of the dome mixed with the, the directionalism of it. Uh, they walk mostly forward. and uh, That direction uh, with a tail and a front is the same as a neck. And so there is a, a similarity in the shape, but when you have to bring the dome into the neck, you have to uh, either stop abruptly or have a cutaway. And the violin uses the cutaway in the middle to make two chambers with a cutaway between them. Hmm. Uh, the uh, road has the cutaway, and then uh, there are d other design things like the balls in the back. What you cut away then became... Uh, a lost mass, but uh, by changing the direction of the sound waves when you cut it away, if they're sweeping out and sweeping this way, and then all of a sudden they have to go through this cutaway, they go faster through the cutaway. Hmm. So they need the amount of mass that was taken away then should arrive at the other side to catch that again and just pass it straight up the neck. Hmm. So. That's sort of the focal point, whereas the speeded up wave and the uh, catcher is where all the electronics are and close to where you're picking. Mm. The bridge itself is down right on the center of the dome. To the get center it. of gravity, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, so it gets the most effect out of hmm. the dome. That's interesting. How do you approach uh, marketing uh, these instruments and uh, what are what problems and advantages have you experienced with the very specialized markets of both well, these, that, that uh, music in and limulus besides just people seeing the instruments we were making here and buying them and we sold quite a few uh, there was a company uh, Mideast Music they were called at the time they uh, wanted to make and market our instrument, make it in Pakistan. Now, the Pakistanis did a great job of copying our body shape, and they made it out of rosewood. It was beautifully cut, and they made a few bases out of sepele. Beautifully cut, but they didn't really have it down to uh, uh, put it all together right. Mm. So the oud one... Uh, 
was like double strings and uh, that was the first they made but they then wanted to sell them for a really high price like $4,200 oh. and we were selling them for 3000 at the time that was uh, crazy mm. so they yeah, didn't that, sell many that wouldn't work <laughs> but they did sell a couple of sitars and they, they showed them at a couple of NAM shows one in do you think that uh sometime in the future you and Andy might eventually uh, outsource the manufacturing of uh, of these instruments and well, keep I, the I, store as, you know, for the more high-end instruments? Yeah, there's like? possible thing. And uh, I, I think the store has a life now that's going to replace me, that the proper people are presenting themselves that can perhaps keep the store going. Uh, there is this woman, Hillary, uh, is now learning how to repair all these things, who is uh, getting a PhD in music, has just worked at the uh, museum, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art for two years. Uh, she is a well-connected and uh, very smart, knowledgeable person who wants to learn the skills that I seem to have uh, learned over the jumped up myself over the course of years so yeah it seems like there is a a, a new community ri- arising with with music in as being the uh, focal point of that uh, thing which uh, seems to be a, a new a new aspect of that cycle beginning all over again especially with the uh, the open mics and the performances that you're having here a lot of young that? people are coming and just want to hang around. They just think it's the best place they want to be in their yeah, life. It's a fascinating place. Yeah. With that in mind, what kind of music scene do you think will arise consider, uh, within and uh, outside of uh, the music in scene? Uh, will arise considering the fact that uh, the younger generations were... Um, were raised with technology that uh, didn't exist when uh, when we were younger, like the internet, artificial intelligence, even. Well, I I uh, like you know like a lot of old people, uh, the power of just uh, the simple expression of the idea, the creative experience, and doing it with uh, where it is the most physically uh, touchable, so you can almost have sex with your audience uh-huh. uh, and uh, so I foresee you know I love the idea of like somebody taking a, a, an Ngone from uh, Africa and singing a song about something totally different mm. in a different context but instead of uh, being stuck in the guitar period the Bob Dylan-esque uh, whatever, the importance of the guitar and the ensemble that people use more sensible, sensitive instruments. So we are getting a few artists who come who play other things now. Uh, I like the crossover of somebody who can write about living in the East Village and growing up there and going to school there and yet play uh, uh, a Moroccan instrument and sing it, you know. Yeah, I suppose it is uh, hard to extrapolate these things. But we are going into a perhaps much more uh, 
important times in the history of mankind. Not that any other time is more important, but some are more uh, charged with a, a volatile nature that uh, will be significant in uh, the whole future evolution of mankind now. With that, uh, what uh, kind of uh business model do you think may be needed for uh, aspiring uh, professional musicians to survive and prosper in the in the environment that you foresee, foresee coming? Oh, I can't answer that at all. I have no idea. They have <laughs> to work at themselves. Yeah. I suppose that uh, you know, they'll find a way to survive and, uh, and this whole thing will grow into something uh, new and unique and at the same time that continuity that we discussed earlier might will still be there that'll revive the uh, the, the whole idea of community and um, making progress with uh, with music artistically and uh, hopefully even uh, economically well anyway I think that ought to do it uh, thank you so much you're for welcome. your time. I really yeah. enjoyed this conversation. I always enjoy talking to you. There's so many stories to tell and so many uh, different uh, you know, equations between those stories that make sense, but uh, it's cool. Yeah, it's all good, man. Yeah. But uh, yeah, thank you again, man. You're welcome. You have been listening to MFM Speaks Out. Our guest was Jeff Slatnik. The topics discussed included Greenwich Village as a historical hub of musical creativity, especially in the countercultures of the 60s and beyond, and how so much music and art came from that small geographic location, Slatnik's beginning at Music Inn under the original owner, how he developed as a musical instrument repairman, his time studying at the Ali Akbar Khan College of Music, his experiences as a performer of classical Indian raga in the United States, his experiences as a teacher, and his theories and philosophies behind Indian raga and cross-cultural musical blending, how he became the owner of Music Inn and the changes that he made in the store, the founding of Limulus Musical Instruments with his partner Andy Dowdy, and the inspiration behind the unique designs of these instruments, opening up music in as a performance venue, and the development and continuity of a music community, especially with music in as the focal point of that community. If you'd like to hear more interviews like this one, hit the subscribe button. Our thanks for your support. We have been doing very well in recent years, we found new audiences and brought incredible stories and content, and we plan to do more of this in the years ahead. We've always been consistent, and an important step towards the success of the music community is in building a different media. If you want to help us on that journey, go to musiciansformusicians.org. You can become a supporter and help our work reach even more people. My name is Dawood Kringle, and you have been listening to MFM Speaks Out, Thank you for joining us.
The one that has, like, yeah, no, I yelled at everybody and I was like, yeah, you keep your tickets. The sounds that you're hearing right now are ambient sounds of music in. This was recorded on Thursday, August 15th, 2022, at the open mic at Music In. Let's give this a listen. That word makes fun of autistic people, but that word does not make fun of autistic people more than 12 seasons of Big Bang Theory. Okay. <laughs> that show is basically, hey, we're going to take autistic people, we'll call them nerds, and no one's going to figure this one out. I like how they're not laughing. <laughs> 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 we got candy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it looks like candy though, man. You know. And, uh, <laughs> and I, again, so wait, I'm taking it off now, but I don't think I'll ever get back to my original weight. I think seven pounds, three ounces is unrealistic. And I decided, you know, I gotta get in shape, so I'll do some exercise. Maybe I'll start jogging, but I don't know anything about jogging. So I looked it up on this thing called the internet. And, <laughs> so we got one more for
Skippers. <laughs>